You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, community radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. From WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, this is the Magical Mystery Tour. beginning the end so where to start this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on wtdr how do you like that the fault dear Buddhist, is not in our stars but in ourselves correct, 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 correct. Good luck. we care about your world stay tuned Epstein, it's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Today we're going to hear an interview with Ira Israel. Ira Israel is a psychotherapist. He teaches at Esalen and Kripalu and other such places, and he's the author of the new book, how to survive your childhood now that you're an adult a path to authenticity and awakening
You're a psychotherapist, and you just wrote this new book, How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult, A Path to Authenticity and Awakening. How long have you been working as a psychotherapist? About 10 years I've been in private practice. And is this work that you enjoy doing? I love it. It's amazing. It's incredibly intimate. In fact, Adam Phillips, a Neil Freudian psychoanalyst out of London, says psychotherapy is the most intimate experience you'll ever have without having sex. And I find that to be the case. I love that. The reason why I do this radio show and I do these interviews is because I love to be able to connect with people who are doing what I consider to be valuable work in this world and whose work is of interest to me. And the whole purpose is the connection that I get to have with people, even if it's just for an hour. It's severely lacking in our culture, the ability to connect with other people. And as I say in my book, that's the one thing that correlates strongly with happiness. And unfortunately, you know, there's no classes in second grade on how to give hugs or how to look someone in the eyes when you talk to them, you know? So we're, yeah. we're very misguided as a culture in myriad ways. Exactly. Our culture, its dominant values and the games that we unwittingly play are the exact opposite of our most basic human needs and desires. A hundred percent. And you start the book by talking about how when children come into the world, they feel and they do what comes naturally to them, but quickly their parents start training them as if they're pets. Right. And children learn to adopt these very unnatural behaviors and schedules in order to get love and approval. And of course, implicitly, we learn that who we are and all our natural inclinations are not okay and that there's actually something wrong with us. Yeah, I mean, that's the insidious part in that the way most parenting and teaching goes on in this culture is through negative languaging. Don't do this, don't do that. And so you wonder why there's this epidemic of negative self-talk 30, 40 years later. You know, no child was born with the thought in its head oh, I'm bad at this, or I'm bad at that, or I'll never amount to anything, or I'll only be happy when I'm president, or, you know, whatever. You know, no babies are not born with these thoughts, so they have to come from someplace. And, you know, I don't think there's a gene for negative self-talk. I think that it's, uh, it's, it's acquired. And over time, the chasm between who we most naturally are and who we've learned to become in order to please others and to be liked by others and accepted becomes so great that we actually get lost. Yeah, it's terrible. And worship in my community is something called golden handcuffs, where if you do everything right, what happens is what I identify as a midlife crisis, meaning that, you know, when I went to the University of Pennsylvania in the 1980s, Basically, subconsciously, we were taught, well, if you do well in school and get a good job, you'll make a lot of money, and then you'll attract a wonderful spouse, and you'll have two points for children, and she'll drive a Subaru, and you'll drive a Porsche or Jaguar, and you'll live happily ever after in the suburbs. And a lot of my friends accomplished those goals, and the happiness, you know, didn't follow them. They just found that they were heavily in debt, they had kids in rehab and a wife that hadn't had sex with them in 15 years. And so they were like, you know, what, what do I do? And, you know, when you have a monthly nut, 
you know, your mortgage and all these debts of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, you can't just say, oh, I'm going to quit my job at Microsoft to become a yoga teacher. You know, you're stuck. It's a golden handcuff. So, you know, I, I work with a lot of people who want to be more authentic but find themselves trapped. And what a trap that is. Those golden handcuffs are what come with the American dream. 100%. And there's, well, you're a psychotherapist. People are coming to you for some way to escape that. And so what is, what is it that you can actually offer them? Well, first thing is to try to get them to lead balanced laws. And, you know, not, as I write in the book, you know, the compensations that people use, like drinking too much or binge buying or the weird afflictions, minor afflictions that people have that sometimes spiral into addictions, that's a killer. When, once you get into that cycle of, you know, working 90 hours a week and then, you know, getting blotto drunk on Friday and then spending Saturday in bed and Sunday, you know, recuperating. So for me, the key word is vocation. As I write in the book, you know, Sonia Lubomirsky wrote The Howl of Happiness, and she looked at some German studies that found that people who have jobs are basically miserable. If you do something for money, then you're not going to be happy. And if you, do have, if you have a career, which is something you do over a long period of time, you'll be slightly less miserable. And the only people who are really happy are people who know their vocation. So voco in Latin means calling, and it's not a passive thing. It's really active. And this is, again, having a paradigm that includes the universe, meaning, you know, when I talk about meditation or yoga or things like that, there's this stillness, and you can receive information on what you should be doing with your life rather than, you know, the information that you're getting from pop culture, from watching television, from, from listening to songs about romantic love, from watching sports games on television again. So, you know, you, you really have to be able to listen to what the world is telling us. And we do this through taste. I mean, Joseph Campbell famously wrote Follow Your Bliss. And, you know, if you're able to just calm down and really think about your love, like your, your passions, the things that move you, whether it's art or taking walks on the beach or golf or fixing cars or whatever it is, and know that, like, if you do anything other than that, you're not going to be happy. Even if someone pays you a million dollars to dig ditches, if you're a writer and you can't write because you're digging ditches, you're going to want to blow your brains out. Yeah, and... Part of our afflictions are addictions to soundbite social media, where there's no room for actual self-inquiry or questioning of anything going on around us, questioning of reality, questioning of, of anything, any, in any meaningful way. It's fascinating. I talked with uh, Lama Surya Das and a bunch of other leaders years ago, and we were all wondering, like, Where's the wisdom in our culture? You know, where's the equivalent of the movie The Secret, like how to get rich through the law of attraction, for wisdom? And you're right, there's an overabundance, a plethora of knowledge that people can have, you know. But I make a joke and I say, you know, with my three graduate degrees and a token, I can ride the subway. Like, we don't need information. We, we need transformation. We need to transform into the next compassionate culture where, you know, we're all living in abundance 
and it's not this like hoarding me 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 scarcity mentality. I mean, it's just like it's insane what people are taught through social media or the values that they learn, and they're people are always comparing their inside lives to other people's glitzy and glamorous outside lives, and that's a recipe for disaster. So in our modern times, instead of going through the mythological hero's journey of going into the underworld, we go into a kind of, well, I'll just use the term cyber world, where we get lost in a world, a realm where there are no real landmarks. I mean, they're just things. They're empty things that we've learned to value, but really have very little value it's all illusory, and the greatest example of this, and maybe I'll get lambasted for this on your show, but the greatest example of this is obviously Bitcoin. I mean, it's just, it's surreal to me. I'm 51 years old, and I meet tons in my practice. I have tons of, like, kids in their 20s and 30s who are like, oh, yeah, well, my cousin just told me to put, I had an extra $3,000 in the bank, and I didn't want, you know, I'm not going to take French courses this year because you're never going to take the French courses. So I'll just put it into Ethereum or Stellar or Bitcoin or whatnot. And it's a weird form of control because these kids, they're just watching these numbers on a screen go up and down all day, and they can't do anything with it. It's just like, it's, it's totally surreal. I mean, uh, it's, it's what George Orwell or <laughs> predicted. See, the funny thing is that we started this conversation about wisdom. I mean, we should have like ninth and 10th graders reading Karl Marx. I mean, he, he was very, very clear. He said the workers, if they're not actually, like, if you're not making carrots or apples and, like, have your hand in the soil, if you're making things that other people in some other part of the world are going to use, you're going to feel disenfranchised and alienated. Like, you need to see the fruits of your labor. And, you know, like, you putting $1,000 or $100,000 into some account and then watching it go up and down is like a rat in a cage, like hitting the buzzer to get more cocaine. It's just like you're getting this dopamine rush every time. But at the end of the day, what did you do on planet Earth? You know, you have 87 years on average here. Like you sat in front of you with your face to a glass screen watching numbers go up and down. And, you know, you want that on your tombstone? Like made a lot of money in Bitcoin? Like, does that show how smart you are? That, that, does that show that you're a loving human being? Does that show that you're happy? Does that, does that show that you knew how to have loving relationships? I mean, it's, when you look at it, it's just, it's absurd. And millennials know that experience is Trump possession. So my generation was extremely materialistic. People would talk about their new BMWs or their vacations. I mean, David Brooks wrote a whole book about it 15 years ago called Bobos in Paradise. And if you go to France, that's an actual word, bohemian bourgeois. And so that's a whole class of people that David Brooks identified who were very materialistic and status-oriented. Now, the, the millennials know that on your deathbed, you will remember walking in the streets of Paris, but won't remember the handbag that you were carrying. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, is that you know, nobody on their deathbed ever said, I should have spent more time in the office. Everybody on their deathbed always says, I should have loved more. And so, you know, like, why can't you take that information now that you're 30 years old and instead of spending 90 hours a week in your office because they have a dry cleaning and they have a chef and you can do a yoga class there and you can get your manicure at your workplace. Like, why don't you just take a walk on the beach with a loved one instead? Because at the end of the day, that's going to make you happy not getting, you know, your shoes shined at your workplace. 
So the work that you do is bringing people back from this netherworld that we've been indoctrinated into through our parents, our, our education system, our society. What is the work that you are engaging them in that's actually bringing them back to reality, bringing them back to who they are? So I raise consciousness, and I do it a lot through humor and jokes, because I think that's one of the best ways to educate people. As a matter of fact, Wittgenstein famously said that the entire history of philosophy could be told as a series of jokes, because jokes work because your mind has expectations regarding the setup, and then the joke goes totally in the other direction. So I'm going to tell you a joke to explicate this. Sure. And I'm not a good joke teller, but we'll talk about the, the setup and, and the end of the joke. The CIA is interviewing for the number one hit person in the world. And there's three final contestants that have gone through all these exercises, and now they're up to their final assignment. So the first guy goes up, and the CIA representative says, okay, for your last assignment, I'd like you to take this gun, go into that restaurant. In the corner, your wife is sitting in a booth. I want you to go in, I want you to blow her brains out, and then come back out. Guy takes the gun, goes into the restaurant, there's silence, comes back out, puts the gun down, and says, I couldn't do it. Second guy comes up, and CIA guy goes, okay, so down to you two. I want you to take this gun, go into the restaurant. In the corner, in a booth, is your wife. I want you to blow her brains out, and then come back outside, give me the gun. Guy says, okay. Goes inside, there's silence, comes back outside, puts the gun down, says, I'm sorry, I couldn't do it. Third contestant is a woman, takes the gun, she goes inside, there's silence, and then there's a bit of a ruckus, and then there's silence, and then she comes back outside, she gives the gun to the CIA guy, she goes, you f***ing idiot, you gave me a gun full of blanks, I had to kill him with a chair. <laughs> so that joke is not funny with two Chinese guys and a Puerto Rican, that joke is not funny with two Mexicans and a Jew, that joke, for some reason, in our minds, is only funny with two guys, because we know inherently that men are weaker than women. And I don't know, but when I think of how jokes are constructed, and the setups, and then where the mind goes, like the mind does, is like a computer, and it fishes for all the possible things, and, you know, there's a, there's a meme that I show in my classes it's a picture that was on the internet years ago. It says, there's a time and a place for decaf coffee. And then at the bottom it says, never and in the trash. Because a t when you think of time, you don't think of never at the time, but it is. And when you think of a place, you don't think of the trash as a place. So there's a time and a place for decaf coffee, you know, like an advertisement, never and in the trash. So again, you can analyze the human mind through jokes. Okay, so to answer your question, Tony, what my job is, is, you know, if I tell people when they walk into my office or into my classes, you know, you're your own worst enemy, they'll either say, well, I already knew that, and so give me my $800 back, or they'll say, no, that's wrong. I went to Harvard. I speak five languages. I'm a genius. I, I, how could I be my own worst enemy? So the only way to get people to realize something out of their paradigm is through you know, a little roller coaster. You have to shake them up a little bit and, you know, maybe be confrontational, 
it, it's a very, very interesting process. I mean, I make a joke in all my classes, and I say, I don't think it's possible to teach anyone past the age of 10 years old anything. But you can inspire them. You can inspire them to want to learn. So what you do is through your way of being in the world, and this is what Nietzsche wrote about also, you should instruct a way of being in the world that makes people curious. It's really hard to enlarge someone's consciousness. The way consciousness works is it has to be teased into like a new, like it has to be just gently seduced to go someplace that it hasn't been before because it has, you know, a general way of thinking. You have a certain number of thoughts every day. Your mind has a negativity bias, so most of your thoughts are negative. And your mind is just doing this crazy machination all the time of, oh, I would have been happier if I won the lottery. I would have been happier if I married this person. I'd be happier if this happened. I'd be happy if the Dalai Lama came and rubbed my back. You know, and your mind makes up all this bullshit all the time and has no correlation to reality. So, you know, we really need to just get a hold of that and understand how the human mind works. And then hopefully, you know, in my classes or in therapy, people just try on new things. You know, when you try on shirts or you try on blouses and things like that, and then you decide which ones you want. So, you know, I, I just tell people, I'm going to give you about 20 tricks. And please try them on. And the ones that you like, take with you. And the ones that you don't like, leave in the dressing room. You know, so that's how my style of teaching is. And you can ask my students if it works or not. And you, you've talked about the value of teasing or being subversive. And that reminded me of a book, which I never read, but I love the title by Neil Postman, Teaching, mm -hmm. teaching as a Subversive Activity. And I think as a parent one of the things that you learn is you often have to trick your kids into doing things. You have to exactly. use negative psychology. And if, you're yep. and if you're smart, you can use children's own genius in your favor, not against them, of course, but to work with their native genius. Well, firstly, I want to say this. One of the most impactful books in my life was 1983, reading Neil Postman's Amused Ourselves to Death which Roger Waters then made into a terrifyingly brilliant CD, which is also one of my favorite CDs. So I appreciate you mentioning the Neil Postman. But yes, the children, as I write in the book, we become what we love and we become what we hate, and both are inauthentic, meaning that in this individuation process, the child is conflicted or torn, and we are similarly conflicted or torn as adults because there's a wounded child in all of us. And... We want to gain the approval, acceptance, love of our primary caregivers, so we imitate them and we do things to, you know, please them. We learn how to use forks, we learn how to stop crying, we learn how to use a toilet. But we're also individuated. We're also becoming our own self. So we get tattoos, we stay out past our curfew, we have sex, smoke marijuana, you know, do things like that. So, um, you know, we, we have to really understand where our desires come from because, you know, some of them could be just reactions to things that we witnessed as children. And, you know, um, I, I think that that's inauthentic. Right. Rebellion and conformity are just two sides of the same coin. <laughs> you know, you said it better than I did. I'm, writing, I'm going to write that down. <laughs> Well, I, I stole that from God knows how many other people who've used that. But yeah, it's it's a simple thing. I mean, after you've lived long, I mean, I've trained as a therapist, but for some strange reason, I 
didn't want to do that. I didn't want to pretend to to be engaged in the process of healing because we don't heal. We the best we can do is help facilitate somebody else's healing of themselves. That's, and, that's wonderfully said. And I was also way too f***ed up to be able to help anybody else, which is actually not true. The more f***ed up we are, I think the more we can actually help other people once we come to terms with how f***ed up we are. Well, my joke is that I say I'm two steps ahead of my patients on a good day. So, you know, but this is my healing journey. And as I say, you know, I don't heal anybody. I don't fix anybody. I share tools. I've gone through a lot of very colorful situations in my life. And I'm 51. I'm still alive. So, you know, the tools that I've picked up along the way, I share willingly. Mm -hmm. You quoted Arthur Yanoff, who Mm -hmm. wrote the famous Primal Scream way Mm -hmm. back, back in the 70s. When I was beginning my journey to healing, I was working with and had friends who did primal therapy, and I was doing that and dry and wet rebirthing. And wow. then, And then I did the, uh, at the time, the iteration was the Fisher-Hoffman process. All these things because I was so incredibly f***ed up and unhappy, and I was desperate. I was desperate to gain some sense of balance and happiness or less misery in my life. Mm-hmm. So what did you learn? <laughs> well, it's not an easy thing, and, and I just had to go through it all, and I had to integrate it all. I had to do the hard work of slogging through it all. No shortcuts. Well, I, I maybe this would be slightly glib, but... After I teach my, my week-long course where I meld 30 years of studying philosophy and Buddhism and Hinduism and psychology down into a week, sometimes at the end I'll be a little provocative, as I'll be now, and I'll say, life is so simple, it's incredible how many people f*** it up so badly. If you want to be happy, there's only one thing that really correlates with happiness, and that's the quality of your intimate relationships. If you're securely attaching to people, if you feel that people have your back, that you have other people's back, that you're really connected. Because we're tribal. We're we're animals. We need other people. And we have this crazy society that foments alienation and thus depression. And if you want to lead a meaningful life, there's only one thing that correlates strongly with leading a meaningful life, and that's being of service to others. And now, hopefully, with the ability to not want people to reciprocate because you're going to watch your mind. You're going to be like, well, I helped that old lady across the street. Now somebody should help me across the street. But that's not the way it works. You have to give and then you have to give more and you have to watch your mind and then hopefully release those expectations. So as I said, the only thing that correlates strongly with happiness is the quality of intimate relationships, connecting with other human beings. And the other thing that correlates with meaning is, you know, serving others. But that's what I've found. Well, you're absolutely right. And I wasn't given those cliff notes back then. When I said I had to slog through, I had to slog through to get to this more recent realization of what you were just talking about. In this work that I do with this radio show, this is the work that I do to be of service and to connect with people on a... I mean, I've gotten to this place where I often am able to connect in a deep, essential way with people over the telephone and when they're live in the studio it's even better 
And that is very simple. But yeah. it would have been nice if I had, if somebody had, I think everybody around me was also equally f***ed up. And we were all stumbling around, desperately seeking relief for our suffering. It was very narcissistic. A lot of the uh, yoga and meditation trips in the West are very narcissistically motivated. We just trying to improve ourselves, make ourselves better, happier, feel better, maybe less guilty for all the other things we've done. Um, I mean, that's that's a bit of a cynical no. thing to say. I mean, I, I, this is this is a part of the chapter on the myth of romance in the book. You know, our culture, in a lot of ways, as I said before, comparing our insides with other people's outsides, you know, whether it's walking by a kiosk and seeing a sexy photo of a young starlet or Justin Bieber or whomever, and, you know, them smiling in their $350,000 Lamborghini. And, you know, we have this ideal of the good life, and we don't understand that it subconsciously makes us all feel like we're lacking something, like we've done something wrong. Like the whole popular culture really is, is very insidious. It really is very harmful, particularly teenagers. You know, when you watch the young women all sexualized and the young guys, what they're trying to do to be macho, you know, these things are not going to help them later in life. They're not going to, you know, lead them on a road to fulfillment and happiness. They're just tools, as I say in the book, compensations, because what they really want is to be loved unconditionally. And they grew up in this crazy society where they watch those terrible TV shows, Survivor, all those TV shows that are based on conflict. And so they're basically, you know, everything is just about competition. And the world shouldn't be a win-lose scenario. It should be a win-win. You know, I can't be great unless you're great. How can I make you great? Not, ha-ha, like I got a 96 on the test and you got a 95. Right. And at a certain point, we eventually come to realize that the only way to win is if it's a win-win proposition. Yeah. And you, you mentioned earlier about giving without needing reciprocation, being able to be satisfied with giving and not being concerned about anything coming back. That if we can really trust... See, this is a big part of my life now, is that I love, I love being able to give and to model that way of living where I can give freely, I can love freely without needing reciprocation, which we were brought up with or brought up to desire and even to desperately desire to go back to a couple of quotes from Arthur Yanoff. He talks about how a baby responds to when they're first put down or left alone to cry themselves out, that they feel like they've been left alone to die or that they're being killed or being abandoned and betrayed exactly and we wonder why people are so up yeah if you look at all these uncivilized third world countries the mother walks around with the baby in the satchel for four or five years and you know they sleep with the baby and the baby breastfeeds and we have this thing called science and so science tells us that the optimum breastfeeding time is 12 to 18 months and the baby should sleep in its own room and all this other stuff. And, you know, you wonder why you have this epidemic of people who think that they're worthless later in life. 
If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Ira Israel, a psychotherapist and author of a new book, How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult, A Path to Authenticity and Awakening. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. What Yanov was speaking about was a core or primal wound. And so when you're 40 years old and you get fired or your wife cheats on you, you're not experiencing that firing or that cheating right then. What's happening is the reopening of your primal abandonment wound. And that, to me, is fascinating. So that's one of the things I love to raise in therapy. You know, just go back into the narrative about the core wounds that the people have and explain to them that the situation that they're in right now is just not this isolated case. You know, they have a theory of the universe in their subconscious and basically, for their whole lives, they've been looking for facts to meet that theory. And, you know, this is just one example of it. Right. And they carry this desperation for love and approval and acceptance throughout their adult lives. That infantile need for love and security and to be cared for. Right. And we never grow up. I had a mother who never grew up. So that was a big part of the genesis of my of my cross to bear. Mm. But it taught me a lot. It was the underworld that I had to journey through in order to become a human being again. Yeah. Well, you know, I do like the hero's journey and that archetype. And it's fascinating. I do believe in karma. And there's certain things about you know, life that we just can't understand. And, you know, you can think, you can put things around and say, like, why I chose my parents. Like, why did my soul, if you believe in that, you know, choose these two people at this point in time? What did I have to learn by having these people raise me? Things like that. So, you know, there's interesting ways to reframe every situation. I mean, I, as I say in the book, you know, when asked, who's your greatest teacher, the Dalai Lama is expected to respond to Buddha since he's the figurehead of Buddhism in the West. And when I've sat with him, someone says, who's your greatest teacher? And he says, the Chinese. And the Chinese killed two million of the people. You know, they hacked them to death. It was really just grotesque. So for him to sit in front of thousands of people and say his greatest teacher is the Chinese, that, to me, is fascinating. It is. And it's very insightful. I mean, the work of Carl Jung is, is the work of gathering, discovering the jewels in the pile, in our shadow, because mm -hmm. that's where the good stuff is. Yeah. There's an interesting shift in our paradigm right now. I mean, Christianity in particular, you know, repressed so much and says, oh, that's bad, don't do this, don't do that, whatnot. And then Freud said, whatever you repress comes back thricefold. So Jung, after him, said, instead of repressing these things, we're just going to come back as various afflictions and addictions. Why don't we embrace them? I mean, for me, this was best explicated 400 years ago by Shakespeare when he said, there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. There's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. So out there in the world is not good or bad. It's our minds that are creating these judgments. And ironically, you know, when you're going through a divorce, well, a lot of people in my community, when they're trying to, you know, they, they've made love to these people, they vacationed with them, they made children with these people, and now they're trying to crush them into the ground and destroy them. 
And the reason is, is because they feel betrayed and abandoned in some way. And so, you know, it's a hate-filled, awful process. And then, you know, 20 years later, after they come to Esalen and they take a couple of classes, they say, oh, yeah, my first wife, she was my greatest teacher. But during the process of going through the divorce, all they wanted, you know, they're leaving nasty messages and they're gaslighting them at their kid's school and they're doing all these horrible things to them. And, you know, it's really... Um, a terrible, terrible extreme to witness in our society. And it would be nice to have somebody to remind us that these challenges that, that we face are our greatest teachers, and if we can just embrace them and learn to integrate them right from the start, it could save us decades of misery. Yeah, well, lifetimes of misery, and... You know, we all have to go on that journey and learn to forgive ourselves, our parents, and accept our whole lives and everything that made us into who we are today and be very thankful that we get to, you know, go on this ride called human existence and have some loving relationships. And, you know, you and I are some of the luckiest human beings that have ever walked the planet Earth, most, well, I forget what the statistic is, but the vast majority of people who walked on planet Earth never reached the age of 40 years old. 3.5 billion people live on less than $1.90 a day, and thousands and thousands of children are going to die in Africa tonight of diarrhea and like one other disease. And so, you know, you and I being, you know, men in this American culture, we're so privileged, we're so lucky, and we have to really be grateful and pay it forward. Yeah, so how can we best do that? Well, for me, it's being of service to others, which I do in two capacities, either through teaching at Esalen and uh, Kripalu and some other places, or by, you know, private therapy sessions. And I enjoy both. I also enjoy writing this book with an incredibly educational process, you know, really structuring 30 years of education into 200 pages and again not just whacking them over the head with like this is the way reality is but just teasing them through some humor into exploring new possibilities new ways of thinking new ears for new music you know like just really having them have their consciousness raised and and learning like hey these are some tools you might want to try on so how receptive are you finding people to working with these new concepts? There's so much love and healing in my workshops, and particularly in my private practice, I, here's the deal. I am a big heterosexual man, and most psychotherapists in my area are female. I think it's 80% of MFTs are female, and there's an economic reason for this because it's really expensive and you don't get paid much. So basically, you need to be supported in some way. So there's this whole cadre of housewives whose kids left the nest, and then they go back to school and become psychotherapists, and, you know, maybe they, there's a divorce settlement involved, or maybe their, their husband will just say, I want to facilitate your greatness, go become a psychotherapist and learn about why you're feeling these feelings, things like that. So for me, I work with a lot of straight guys. And in our, in our culture, there's a lot of like failure to launch issues or existential issues or just guys between like 20 and 35 years old 
who are terrible at relationships. Maybe they've been watching a little bit too much porn. You know, maybe they just got into the wrong group of friends and they're doing too many drugs. But, you know, for me personally, my growth out of that comes from, you know, like, I'm, I'm like, I play the role of the cruel father in a way. Um, that's what I think is subconsciously going on in the room because I really inspire them not to want to do drugs rather than, you know, slapping on the wrist like their father would have been saying, bad boy, bad boy, don't do drugs. And then, you know, the rebellious part of that is they're going to say, F- you, Dad, don't tell me what to do. I'm my own person. Can I have the rest of my trust fund money, please? Um, <laughs> so, so, I mean, I just deal with a lot of very interesting young men in my practice, and I find them fascinating, the influences that have shape their way that they think through the internet, popular culture, social media, things like that. Uh-huh. Up here, most of the people that I encounter are people who are really struggling to survive. They have leftist politics. They're fairly jaded about the world. They're not particularly happy. And they're wanting to make a meaningful life for themselves. They want to be of service in a way that feels good. But I think most people still caught up in that old self-loathing and there's something wrong with me. And they don't get the most powerful, essential lessons of just needing, of focusing on connection. And even though they have connections, their relationships fall apart and even though they know that, that their relationships are the most important thing, they have that anti-Midas touch. Right. So you have to understand, like, we're born social creatures. We want to play. We want to hug. We want to make love. We want to break bread. We want to, like, be with other people. And if, if there's any impulses against that, that those were conditioned into you. Unless you were born a sociopath, which I don't think anyone was actually born a sociopath. I mean, just look at animals. You know, we're interdependent creatures, and we grew up in a f***ed up society, which made us compete with all of our peers. And we do this throughout our lives, and we do this very subtly now as adults. But there's always, you know, this schadenfreude where it makes us happy when other people fail. And that's the cause of our own suffering and demise. You know, we should all be working to make the world a better place, to make it more equitable, to eliminate white privilege, to have everybody have equality of opportunity in this culture. And, you know, we need to make a lot of changes. There's a lot of systemic problems in this culture. You know, the way we treat women, the way we treat any minorities, our whole culture is based on exploitation and oppression. And until we wake up and say, like, okay, this is not f***ing working. We're about to have another civil war if these two classes of people were completely complacent because of, you know, their flat screen TVs and their ability to buy a 64-ounce gulp at 7-Eleven for $1.50, you know, to get themselves high, like if they weren't just complacent, they would understand that they're being oppressed. They're being exploited in some ways, working 80 hours a week in some, you know, mill or some crazy place. You know, we have to figure out a better way of interacting with other human beings rather than this capitalistic emphasis on the bottom line, which says, oh, I'll just pay you at the least amount possible, and if you cause any amount of trouble, I'll just fire your ass and hire someone else. Because that's what we do. You know, we're doing it with the Chinese now. You know, they have billions of extra people, so we just shove them in the Foxconn factory, work them 17 hours a day for $5, 
And then, you know, you and I are the beneficiaries because we get to sit around and play with our $400 iPhones all day. When, meanwhile, when the real cost of this thing is probably, you know, five, ten thousand dollars $10,000, but nobody wants to pay five, ten thousand dollars $10,000. It's the same for all of our systems. If you look at it, they're really exploitative. And it's really despairing to look at the state of the world, to look at our political economic system, and to look at our place in it, and to recognize or to think that, we have no say in it. We have no power in it because the ruling class in our country, well, the politicians are really just puppets, but they're modeling a psychopathic level of behavior that is spiraling further and further out of reality, yeah. out of sanity. And a lot of people just throw their hands in the air and say, it's completely f***ed. Well, one of the main themes of the book is that power corrupts. And that if you listen to Robert Rice. There were regulations and laws and taxes put in place in the 1950s to compensate for the fact that power corrupts, meaning that if you give Justin Bieber, you know, any 20-year-old $50 million, he's not going to donate it to building wells in Africa. He's going to spend it on drugs and girls. Because when you have that power, when you have the ability to do these things, it doesn't bring out the best in people. So we had a system that had regulations in place. And then starting with Ronald Reagan, you get the deregulation of everything. You get this bullshit free market. As I state in the book, a free market is when I say, Tonio, can I have your carrot? And you say, sure, it's a dollar. And then I stab you in the neck in case of carrot. That's a free market. But we have these things called laws and regulations. And we need them. And, you know, you have these Republicans saying, oh, you know, the free market will meet out the best products and all this other stuff. But really, all you get is exploitation and bad products because human nature has to be accounted for. Yep. And the people who are most advocating deregulation are the people already at the top at the of the top. heap. Yeah. And they just, <laughs> for some psychotic reason, are not satisfied with the more than they will ever be able to spend. All the studies on happiness state that after $80,000, after you have your basic needs met, you're, you're not any happier. So if you're walking around and you're you know, checking your net worth on the Internet, oh, am I on this 400 list? Am I on my 200 list? Am I on this billionaire list? You're a psychopath. I mean, that, that's just insanity to think that, like, oh, I'm a better person because I made this much money. And the other thing that I say in all my articles is that all real philanthropy is done anonymously. So when you have these people donating millions of dollars and getting a publicist to get them on the cover of Time magazine, that's not philanthropy. That's a search for redemption. So, you know, like, we all have to work to make the world a better place, but you don't have to take out a billboard and say, you know, like, I'm making the world a better place. This is one of those things where you, you want to be anonymous. You, you just do it. It's just a very, very odd system that we live in. And as I stated in some articles recently, you know, I'm wondering, does it end with a bang or a whimper, as Elliot wrote? You know, like, do we have to go through a violent upheaval like other cultures have, or can we kind of morph into a more compassionate culture? And, again, we're going to have to put a lot of regulations in place. I don't know. We had this terrible school shooting yesterday. What is it? This one school shooting every 60 hours in the United States. So there's obviously something wrong with our educational system that makes people want to go back into the high schools and kill a lot of people. So why are we not looking for solutions to this with, you know, gun control and mental health for, for anybody who needs it? I mean, these are very serious problems. I mean, this is a, there's an epidemic in this culture of people wanting to kill other human beings. That is seriously f***ed up. 
Yeah, and I think it was Paul Levy who said that schizophrenia is a logical response to our culture. R.D. Lang, and it was also where you live in Vermont, if I'm not mistaken. It was like 1972-73 that R.D. Lang said that schizophrenia is actually the purest understanding of reality. Yeah, we need some new ways of thinking about child-rearing, about our educational system, about what's the measure of success in our society, about popular culture, about what constitutes a marriage, you know, what role does sex play in someone's life, what is the relationship between sex and love, because as a species, we're horribly misguided. So you say a number of times in the book that what we really want is to be loved unconditionally. And that Correct. everything we do is somehow motivated by that deep desire. Well, it's worse than that because we only have tools to gain love conditionally. So America functions as a giant resentment factory because we're constantly seducing people into liking us because we're rich and we speak well and we vacation in exotic places. But we really want them to like the whole inner, unseemly situation that we know are ourselves. So, you know, yes, we want to be loved unconditionally, and we only have tools to gain love conditionally. So, you know, until we can drop those facades, until we can drop that persona and really just be authentic, which is why I've written this book on authenticity, you know, to help people learn to show up in a more vulnerable, loving manner so that encourages or inspires other people to show up in their authentic, vulnerable self instead of that, like, macho posing or, you know, that whole status-driven, you know, way of connecting. You know, I spend a lot of time in cafes, as most writers do, and I listen to the conversations that people are having about their handbags or their cars or their zip codes or their houses or how wealthy their boyfriend is or how sexy their girlfriend is. And sometimes I just want to say, like, why are you talking about bullshit? Like, none of this matters. The only thing, you know, at the end of the day, you want your tombstone to say beloved. You don't want it to say richest person in the cemetery. Like, all of your goals are the things that are causing your suffering. We need some new goals. You know, how can we make our society more just? How can we have, you know, more community? How can we have more wisdom and know things rather than all these sound bites and bullshit in our heads? So we've all learned to be afraid of showing or revealing who we are to people around us. And yet what you're saying is that we need to be who we are authentically in order to give people the chance to love us. Well, I started this conversation by saying, you know, like for me, the tools of meditation and yoga were so transformational because, you know, after years and years and years, I was able to listen to what the universe was telling me about who I should be rather than all the fictions that I accumulated in my childhood through watching movies and television and listening to songs. And so, yeah, we have to figure out who we are and our vocation and just work as hard as possible to be the people that our higher selves tell us we should be and to lead the lives that our higher selves tell us we should be leading. Those are the only people who are happy. If you have the integrity to write out, okay, this is who I am. You know, I'm a writer. I'm here to raise consciousness. I'm a teacher. I'm, I'm here to help other people get through difficult situations. That's my job. 
I get paid for it. F***ing awesome. Getting to this, our higher self stuff, how can we use that? How can we relate to that? How can we connect to that and bring it into our lives in a relevant way? It's all about taste. Taste and discernment. You're getting billions of bits of information at all points in time. And your, your mind is like a sieve and it's just giving you, you know, it's like you have blinders on. And I think we have theories about how the universe is operating, whether it's scarcity driven or abundant. And we develop these theories, whether we have to be suspicious of other people or we can trust other people. I think we develop these theories pre-verbally. It's just something instinctual. And hopefully, you know, we can overcome all the negativity from our traumas because the mind, as I state in the book, is built to try to stave off future traumas. The primary goal of the human mind is to try to stave off potential future traumas. And what it does is it assimilates all those situations where we were humiliated and we were terrified when we were three years old and seven years old and 14 years old, and it projects them into the future. And what happens is when you go through these situations, you're like, wow, that was so terrible what happened with Timmy in the schoolyard and this happened and that happened. I am never going to let that happen again. I'm going to lift weights. I'm going to become this. I'm going to get rich. I'm going to be this. And we have this way of being that's constructed from the point of view of an angry, wounded child. And what I'm doing is saying, hey, listen, all those reactions and compensations and expectations and prejudices you developed to survive your childhood are fantastic because they worked and you survived and you're here. But now let's look at those expectations, judgments, prejudices, fears, resentment, and see if they're not hindering you from getting the real love that your soul craves. And then if they are, let's make some tweaks or adjustments so that you can get the love that you really want rather than, you know, seducing people into liking this facade because you own a big home and a beach house. As I said, we need to know how to connect and attune and attach to people in a much more compassionate, loving manner. Well, I want to get back to how you define and bring this term higher self into the equation, because this is a term that's bandied about a lot. Well, personally, I'm not a religious person. I don't espouse any religion at all, period. I think when you look at the history of religion, you'll find a lot more negative things and a lot more positive things, period. I think they all started for wonderful reasons, but they've all been corrupted. And I and to go out even further, I don't think that any organized religion should be tax-exempt. You know, they're businesses now, and they're very competitive, and the Jesus and Buddha or any of the founders didn't want any of the things that religion has transmuted into. So I'm against all religions equally. Now, I consider myself fairly spiritual, meaning that there have been events that have transpired in my life, things that I've seen, healings, interesting things that science cannot account for. They are extraordinary. They're outside of our Western paradigm. And I don't think that science can know everything. I think that's really arrogant. I don't think we'll ever know how the brain works. We know how 9 or 10% of it works. I think that science just has this, like, incredible arrogance to it and that we should understand that the mind craves certainty. But as Nietzsche said, you know, the mind would rather accept the wrong facts 
in uncertainty. And that's where we're at right now. We have a lot of things that are shifting radically, and I find that that's fascinating. I say in the book and I say in the course, if you tried to explain to my grandmother 40 years ago that there would be something called transgender bathrooms, gay people could marry, a black man would be president, the marijuana would be legal, she would have thought that you were mentally ill, right? And yet all those things have transpired in the past 40 years. Now, in 40 years, when people look back on us and they look back on root canals, asphalt, gasoline cars, things that we consider normal, they're going to think that we are cavemen. So we have to understand that there's no such, for me, there's no such thing as truth. There's no, you know, we just have our own understanding and they're severely impoverished. So in terms of my understanding, I encompass mystery. And, you know, whether you call it synchronicity, as Carl Jung did, or you believe in Brahman and Hinduism, Advaita Vedanta, and we're all connected and everything that we're perceiving, and this is a chapter on Vedanta in the book, through our five senses, and that we chunk into narratives, all of that is illusory. All of that, everything that we perceive is ephemeral. And language creates reality. So as I've stated several times, you have to understand that if you don't have this language, like my cat is sitting here and it doesn't speak English and it doesn't think like, oh, I better do this thing for tomorrow or wow, that was really terrible yesterday. You know, it just has feeling state. So if you understand that language creates reality and that our understanding of reality is not comprehensive, that there's a lot of things that are, we don't understand. We don't understand how the tides go in and out. We have a formula for gravity, but no scientist can say, well, there's these things that shift the moon, and then there's this thing that happens with Jupiter, and then, you know, all these things that we consider to be normal, are, when you deconstruct them, are really absurd. So, again, this is why I wrote this book and why I teach these classes, because People are so hell-bent on dogmatism and their way of seeing things. And really, we just dislike the uncertainty of reality. So again, to answer your question, higher selves means that our minds really don't have a comprehensive way of seeing reality. And we have to include mystery, and we have to include the possibility. Actually, the possibility is 100%, so I don't even know what to call it. But, you know, our way of seeing the world, our way of speaking, our way of dressing, our way of doing everything will be considered absurd sooner than we think. So, you know, right now, as opposed to saying, oh, we have to bomb North Korea and, you know, we have to get the oil from Iraq, why can't we think of a better way of doing things so that we're not killing hundreds of thousands of people on a daily basis? So it gets back to Einstein's quote about the level of consciousness that created this problem can't be solved. We'll not be able to solve it, yeah. the problem. So yeah. how do we make those jumps in level? It's super tough because, you know, we're really all addicted to our own personal identities. And we need to do things to break out of our comfort zones just little by little. Like for me, I'm 51 years old. I took a swimming lesson last week. And you know what? I really enjoyed it. I was terrified, and I, I suck at swimming, but I learned something, and I'm taking some more courses on literary theory and philosophy at UCLA. We need to always be growing and evolving because the world is an incredibly wonderful place, but as I said, our minds have a negativity bias, and we need to just constantly evolve or we die, stagnate. And, and we also have to find a way beyond the parameters of the stories that we keep telling ourselves and 
others around us. Yeah, well, there's another joke that I often tell. So, um, guy goes into a shrink's office and he says, Doctor, I, I think I'm a grain. I think I'm a little seed. And the doctor says, Oh, wow, that's really awful. We've got to put you in an insane asylum. So they put him in a mental institution, and for six months they work with this guy, they work with this guy, they work with this guy. And finally, they convince him he's a man and not a seed. And so they have a big party for him, and then he leaves the insane asylum, and five minutes later, he runs back in, huffing and puffing. And the doctor says, what happened? And he said, well, I went outside, and I know I'm a man and not a seed, but does the chicken outside know? The problem is that we convince everybody in our lives of our story, like whether we're the victim or the hero, and both are inauthentic. We need to know how to convey reality in a less biased way and enroll people in being loving presences in our lives without us being victims or heroes. And we have to somehow learn to recognize and acknowledge reality as something that's continually changing, evolving. It's not that same static thing that, that people who think of science understand with any level of certainty. Yeah. It's funny. I always say, if you came up to me in New York City on uh, September 10th, 2001, and said, what are the chances of the World Trade Center not being there at the end of your life? You know, like every other New Yorker, I said chances are zero, and I'd be wrong. I'm talking with Ira Israel. He's a psychotherapist and the author of the new book, How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult, A Pathway to Authenticity and Awakening. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. We just don't know when the next tsunami is coming. You know, science does these things to try to maintain some kind of certain grasp of reality. But life is a lot more volatile than we think. 23 million people die every year in auto accidents. How many of those people woke up that morning and said, you know what, I think today I'm going to die in an auto accident? None of them, because accident means it's not expected, you know? So it's like we really have to relinquish that grasp for certainty because the world is a, is a crazy, uncertain place. It sure is. And that, that seems to be the ultimate lesson for us to learn to make peace with. And it's very, very challenging. Yep. We've been brought up to argue with reality first by learning to argue against ourselves. Yeah, there's a beautiful quote by Eckhart Tolle. He says, Whether accept your life or change it, any other position is insane. And I really love that. And again, this is to answer your questions about how I expand consciousness, because there are little phrases like Jacques Lacan's language thinks me, or Eckhart told you either accept your life or change it. Any other position is insane. So if you think about that phrase, then you know that if you complain against anything, you're insane. That's a new definition of insanity, right? Because the world is what it is. You either accept it or you change the things that you can't. But sitting around saying, oh, yeah, I'd be happier if I had won the lottery or if I had sex with this person or if I became a lawyer, if I didn't become a lawyer. If you indulge your mind to go down these fantastic, hypothetical, dark alleyways, you're going to cause your own suffering. Mm-hmm. Or like Byron Katie says, who would I be without this story that I'm telling myself? Yeah. So is there anything else? Well, I'll just end by saying, you know, I share tools to help people 
stay at the higher end of their happiness ranges. These things are scientifically proven, and they're also commonsensical. We just have to embrace that our society is misguided and that there are ways to really lead healthy, loving lives and to contribute to the betterment of society and to, you know, ease other people's suffering because we are privileged and our own transformation, our own evolution comes through helping other people. You know, like the goals of our culture are really insane and hopefully, you know, we can morph to the next culture of compassion which I think is coming without a civil war. But, you know, people, as I said, power corrupts, and the people who have their gated communities and their security guards and their fences and everything, they don't want to give up this stuff. And so, you know, we might have to go through some sort of violent revolution. And we live in a country that has a huge population who live in a kind of gated community state of mind where they... They think or they feel like they have theirs and everything is going along well enough and they're just concerned about making sure nobody else impinges upon what they have. The fiction is that America is a meritocracy. So when people get rich, they think, oh, you know, I worked hard. God loves me. It's not because, you know, my parents forced me to go to an Ivy League school. And the world's not like that. As Malcolm Gladwell showed in his book, and there's a wonderful, I forget the gentleman's name, who did a TED Talk on the fact that wealthy people don't help create jobs. It's middle-class people who then help create jobs. You know, we really just have to look at all the bullshit that average people have been fed and now believe in and try to make the world a more equitable place. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been fun talking with you. It's been great, Tony. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I appreciate you reading my book and all that. I enjoyed the book, and good luck with your work. Thank you very much. It's been lovely connecting with you. Take you, care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Ira Israel. He's a psychotherapist and the author of a new book, How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult, A Pathway to Authenticity and Awakening. friend Erica Heilman does a brilliant podcast called Rumble Strip. It used to be called Rumble Strip Vermont, but she's been broadening her scope. And we're going to hear her latest podcast, which is a wonderful interview with Ryan Lott from the music group Sunlux. 
Here's Erica Heilman. This is Rumble Strip. I'm Erica Heilman. I am recording. Excellent. You know, Are I was thinking, recording? I'm recording, and I was thinking about usually when I am interviewing somebody, I'm looking at them, and usually I'm, you know, responding with my face. And So you printed out um, some photographs, some press photographs? Um, I did, some happy yeah. and some sad. Yeah. Some happy and some, and some kind of ambiguous expressions. Mysterious. But um, murky. 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 Uh, mercurial is my... Um, is my blue steel. Mercurial is your resting face? Mm, resting mercurial face. <laughs> Days we were young that's Ryan Lott, and you're listening to his band Sunlux, a band that's pretty much impossible to categorize or genreify. The sound is massive, it's anthemic, but it's also strangely intimate. The rhythms are incredibly complex, and it's shot through with these bright little details of sound. The project started in Ryan's brain in Cleveland, where he was composing music for dance performances. And then it grew by two, guitarist Rafik Batia and drummer Ian Chang. They're all composers and producers, performers and improvisers. And I think it's fair to say that they're all wicked smart. Rafik and Ian are based in New York, and Ryan is in L.A., which is where he was when I interviewed him just two days before he went out on tour for their new album, Brighter Wounds. He was in a studio, and I was in my underwear closet. And we got into this really interesting conversation about where music actually comes from and how he makes it, or maybe where he finds it. And the beauty of interviewing musicians is you can play their music, so you'll hear lots of Sunlux in this show, too. It starts out with me asking him how he sort of arrived at or how he found his own sound. Here's Ryan Lott. This is a dream state. You know, uh, I think what's so weird about music is it, it has its own life. It, it, it exists. I mean, what the heck is it? <laughs> we, can, we can make it, but then once it's made, it's like it, entirely its own thing. I mean, it's like a human itself. You know, once you've, you've made it, and you can, you can cultivate and craft it, but, you know, you let that thing go, and it's, it's entirely its own thing taking with it a diminishing amount of your influence so on the topic of how do you cultivate your own artistic voice um it's more about like well how do you discover how do you discover it rather than how do you like make it right so you're saying that you're saying that it's it's of you but it's also something that you have found it's almost like it's it already was there in a dark room and then you've turned on the lights yeah absolutely it exists already and for you to find you know, there's there's an aspect of, of there's something within you that, that exists whether you like it or not. And there's a way to find it. And I and there's a an honest uh pursuit that yields I think a discovery. Um 
sometimes that's a great discovery and sometimes it's not. And then in ways that you sort of object to that discovery, then that there's the an inherent friction there that you can work against to make yourself better and then in very practical terms just uh, cultivate like you would if you were a woodworker or like steel worker or something, someone that just needs to work at it and then get better at your at your craft. What are some of the ways to decrease the friction for you? I mean, what are you doing that invites the discovery rather than dissuade? I mean, just putting in hours. I mean, I, I, you know, there's not like some magic, like I don't like candles and like, I don't get high. I don't like, it's, it's, it's really just work. I mean, there's a lot of discipline and work um, involved in, in, um, on a, on a practical level, one of the things that I do is I, I work on a bunch of different things all at once. And that um, that is a, a really great way to avoid writer's block because I never set up too much friction or too much opposition between myself and the thing that I'm trying to winnow out. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as I experience a certain amount of struggle, apathy frustration those channeled toward music aren't in my opinion aren't going to yield something beautiful you know friction or frustration and um anger those are great things as long as they're not channeled toward the thing that you're creating in in my opinion i think i think i i want to be in love with i want i want to be in love with the thing that i'm creating My wife Jen and I always forget, is it bitchy resting face or resting bitch face? Do you remember? I think it's bitchy resting faced. Bitchy, okay, so... Wait a minute, now I'm confused, resting... Because bitch is a noun converted into an... Because bitch is a noun converted into an... Yeah, adjective or whatever. Well, I'm glad we straightened that out, like, right at the top of this interview. Um, Yeah. So, we were talking about how music is something that, in a way, it exists outside of yourself and you find it so when you're sitting down to write a score or song how do you find it it's almost like um taking a journey where maybe there's a bunch of detours and the detours are they generate work for you and in that process you discover you know rather than only having like Dairy Queen and Taco Bell to choose from on the road trip. Like you have some really cool mom and pop places, you know, that you can discover and hiking trails and things that are off the beaten path. But they they do. I do have the sense that in create in the creative process that something there are things out there that exist already. That and and it's hard to explain. But the reason why I feel so sure about this is that there are 
there are these moments of serendipity, there these kind of like quote unquote lucky moments, the lucky things that happen and you're just like, wow, like I definitely I wasn't the architect of that. This happened to me in the creative process, like, whoa, so this just happened to me. You know, and then it gets you excited about other people hearing it because it's gonna happen to them. <laughs> you know probably to a lesser degree because they they hadn't spent 270 hours to arrive at that point so the waterfall at the end of that super long trail they're going to come down on on a from a helicopter on a rope you you know hike through the jungle but either way that waterfall you know we're both going to you know arrive at it and what also happens is you hike through the jungle and you come across this tree and because of your fatigue and because of like all the effort it took you to blah you know, and then you're like, oh, my God, I found this amazing tree and the fruit from it is, oh, my God, it's so good. Well, it's actually not that good. The fruit is not that good, but you're just you just need it to be for your own like sanity. And when other people come across it, they take that tr- that bite of that fruit and they're like, uh, it's actually pretty bland. It's got this really weird mouthfeel. I'm not into it. Right. And that's a lot of times what making music is as well. <laughs> not always a gorgeous waterfall. So in your experience of listening to your music, it must be like looking at a map or looking at a map of all of that experience making making it. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like a window into a house that I experienced while making that window from the inside out. Whereas like for if you hear one of my pieces of music, you see the window and it glistens in a certain way and that catches the light in a certain way, but you may not have the desire or you may not have the ability to see through that window into the world that I experienced um, as I as I created that room inside and, and you know built that window. Um, I'm using so many kind of ridiculous metaphors in this interview. I'm kind of loving it's, the metaphors. <laughs> see, I'm not like usually like, it's like metaphor guy. It's like a, it's like a waterfall of windows. <laughs> you know, you know, it's a, it's, to clarify, it's a, it's a waterfall of Windows 98 computers that are, um, when computers running Windows 98 that are all sort of collapsing into one giant gargantuan, um, trash pile.
How would you explain what Sunlux is? There are three of you, but it sounds like there are many more of you. What is the music? What is it? What is the music actually made of? Well, kind of inherent to your question is is a assumption that music exists because it was performed um, and recorded, which I think is an errant. <laughs> Sorry, but that's like that's that's a kind of um that's a really limited view of how music comes to exist. Um, Are you scolding me? <laughs> um, the beauty of this moment is that music can reveal itself both through our limbs and also kind of almost directly from our minds um, with the assistance of technology and there are ideas that we can have that are entirely unperformable but they can be brought to be so suddenly the 12 string guitar can do things that no 12 string guitar can do but through technology and through the mind and the application of both of those working together you can create something that's truly musical but also not performable so when it comes to the record yes there's all sorts of things that we can do that have nothing to do with like holding a guitar and playing it traditionally or sitting in a drum kit and playing it traditionally or piano or a now all of those things do happen in our music for sure and in good measure but if there's one thing i would say i'd want people to walk away from or experience while listening to the music which isn't a requirement, but it's something I'd, I'd hope, is that they feel, that a person feels there's something both deeply strange and also profoundly familiar about the, the world of sound that they find themselves in. So how do you translate your music to live performance? I mean, when you're, how do you perform music that you, in many ways, describe as unperformable? Um, what goes into a a live performance, let's call it a live performance, um, is just a crap load of preparation, which is the case if you're um, a singer and you strum a guitar and you have a harmonica strapped to your neck. There's a lot of prep that goes into something, you know, no matter what you're doing. So in our case, there's that traditional prep, learning how to play the song and how to sing the song. But then there's also some programming because we're actually one of the ways you can think about it is that we're we're building the instruments that we're playing in the digital realm we are sort of creating the very instruments that we're playing and so there's an additional layer of preparation until all that work is done you can't really get inside the music but once all that preparation is done just like a classical pianist you know you just, once the motor memory is there and emotional preparation that you've made and the decisions you've made um, at that point you can make music <laughs> in front of humans um, how do you communicate with each other on stage kind of, you're, you're all aware of of the possibility of something happening that's improvisational and y in order for something to happen you all have to kind of arrive at the same door at the same time and that's that's a kind of a miraculous thing. So how you s listen that right? Yeah, I I mean I I'm not um, I wouldn't say I'm very good at it, but when uh, when it's working, it it's so so cool. I mean it's like when you when you make a decision in the moment, and so does someone else. The exact same decision, the exact same moment. 
um, when you share a mind in that way. It's incredibly exciting, and it's it's not something that is, you know, I don't understand it, um, but I also don't understand, like, I mean, how does a phone work? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it definitely works, but, like, how does a cell phone actually work? I mean, some people understand it, and I don't. Um, but at the same time, I totally do. And I, it is, I can, I can, I can do a phone call really, really well. (laughs) Um, and you know, a lot of times that's kind of what music is. Like it's just kind of this weird, especially, uh, music, live music that involves improvisation. It's like, you can kind of understand it. I mean, there's certain mechanics of it that you know, but you, you can't necessarily explain it. And certainly how it happens is is a giant is a giant magical mystery of people around the world who listen to your music is that um can you get can you get lost in there or or i mean how does how do you manage are there ego issues that must be managed uh, you know of course it's amazing to think about oh my gosh this video has like millions of views and that means people are really listening to the music and then i go to this town i've never heard of and hundreds of people show up and it's like that's all amazing stuff. I mean, I'm, you know, of course, um, it's definitely not why I do this, um, but it, it's one of the rewards for doing it. I mean, the music itself is is the reward. I mean, anything above that is is just completely in excess. Um, my good friend Nathan Johnson said uh, once, "You don't have to play by their rules if you don't need their rewards," and I think that's a really important concept to keep in mind in the creative process if your aim is one thing your process and and what you do will be informed by of course your aim and so to continually recognize that the aim of making the music is is the music then that's that's a great safeguard i think for getting out of uh getting out of whack and also recognizing that every day on twitter i happen upon someone with 10 million followers who I've never heard of. And then I realize, oh, like, my um, a lot less than that number of followers <laughs> like, is a good reminder that um, I'm, you know, this is a huge world and I'm a, I'm a tiny human being and I make relatively strange music and um, God bless the people who listen and also the people who don't. <laughs> was Ryan Lott, founder of the band Sunlux. Sunlux is also Rafiq Batia and Ian Chang. Their latest album, which was just released, is called Brighter Wounds, and they start a North American tour on March 7th. I'll put a link to their site up on my website, rumblestripvermont.com. I'm working on several big shows at once right now, which take longer to make. 
So if you don't hear from me for a little bit, know that I am driving around in my car with a recorder. And if you want to comment on what you're hearing, please take a minute to make a comment on iTunes or Apple Podcast, whatever it's called now. Um, that helps new listeners find the show. That is it for now. I will be back soon. And thanks a lot for listening. Thanks, Erica. That was brilliant. And that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week.